And then the other would be a regulatory breakthrough, which is the first like acceptance of efficacy data for a lifespan extension drug in dogs um, that just occurred a couple of weeks ago. Lisa, to be really clear, like this is something that I thought was impossible like five years ago, and the company got it done in four. Wow. So like, I mean, like <laughs> wow. we're really talking about something where if you're in the field, like I, I mean, literally when this happened, I was in this exact office. I like broke down. I screamed, ran into like a conference room, started crying because just you wow. can't like you know being in this field for 17 years, right? I, again, like since I was a kid and just dreaming of things like this that could happen where you get mainstream, like, consideration, just, you know, even just rationally of the data in the field. I mean, it's really emotional to see that happen. And I think, like, it's so hard to convey to people outside the field how big of a milestone this is and, like, how much it's going to impact, I think, a lot of things that come downstream. Even if this drug ends up failing, you know, for whatever other reason down the road, I think this regulatory milestone is, is a huge one for the field. Hi, listeners. This is Luis Rodriguez, one of the hosts of the 80,000 Hours podcast. Today's guest is Laura Deming, who's a venture capitalist who funds companies working on anti-aging and life extension technology. So before this interview, I really had no idea how far along the field of life extension research kind of already was. And I was honestly very skeptical that extending life way longer than our current life expectancies was particularly plausible. Um, And then I also had some pretty deeply ingrained intuitions about whether life extension would even be a good thing. But Laura really convinced me that there just are, well, one, lots of reasons to think lifespan is remarkably malleable. So for example, we can increase life expectancy in model organisms like mice a lot by doing really basic things. So restricting their calories, making single genetic mutations, and giving existing drugs that are already approved to treat non-aging related illnesses. And yes, mice are pretty different from humans, but there are reasons to think that human lifespans might be malleable in similar ways. Um, So that already kind of blew my mind. Um, But we've actually made a bunch more scientific progress than that. So again, for example, it's plausible that there will be FDA-approved life extension drugs for dogs as soon as 2025, which to me feels insane. So we talk about all of that as well as kind of the basic case for aging research, reasons Laura doesn't think the objections to trying to extend human life are convincing, Uh, recent big wins in aging research, talent shortages and other bottlenecks in achieving lifespan extension, and plenty more. So without further ado, I bring you Laura Deming. Today I'm speaking with Laura Deming. Laura grew up homeschooled in New Zealand, but moved to the U.S. when she was 12 to start graduate coursework at the University of California, San Francisco. There, she visited the Kenyan lab, which had increased the lifespan of the worm C. elegans by a factor of two using genetic engineering. She then got into MIT to study physics at the eye-popping age of 14, but in 2011, she dropped out of MIT to take a $100,000 Teal Fellowship and attempt to launch a venture capital firm focused on funding companies that could slow or prevent human aging. That project, which became the Longevity Fund, raised $4 million in its first fund, then $23 million in its second fund, and millions more since then. And with that funding, Laura has invested in a range of projects like Unity Biotechnology and given seed funding to young researchers and entrepreneurs. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Laura. Thank you for having me. 
So I hope to talk about why we think increasing human lifespan is even possible and some of the advances in the longevity field that you're most excited about. Um, But first, why are you working on ending aging? Yeah, the way I think about it personally is just kind of working on medicine rationally. It's sort of, you know, really in my mind, we just at some point arbitrarily decided to start calling certain classes of symptoms diseases and then kind of also somewhat arbitrarily kind of cordoned off a subset of diseases that we could work on. And like diseases related to older age don't fall into that. And I actually think there's a good reason for that. Um, Like I think mentally it's quite hard to uh, deal with questions around death or the inevitability of death or kind of when one might die. And so it's like actually quite stabilizing to say, well, that's just automatically going to happen. But unfortunately, this is very inefficient (laughs) if this means that you end up not developing kind of technology or medicines to um, address that. So sorry, that's a long answer. But like in my mind, it's just literally just working on medicine rationally, like not ignoring classes of symptoms because they happen to be associated with older age. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Is the idea something like there are groups of symptoms that come with older age that historically we've not prioritized? Because I guess I do have this kind of feeling that symptoms at older age are kind of inevitable. And so the idea is like, we irrationally have been treating them as inevitable, but they're not. We can actually just like try to treat them as diseases or as as symptoms that can be addressed the way we do many other symptoms. Exactly. Um, and I think, like, let's be clear, like, when I was a kid, I just assumed this was true. And if, like, we were born, we, if we were talking 100 years ago, that would have been a bad assumption. Like, you know, 100 years ago, like, maybe talking about treating those symptoms would have been as reasonable as talking about, like, going to Mars, you know, in that decade. It's like, maybe physically plausible, but like probably not going to get there. Um, I think the thing that makes this relevant and I think makes this like a really important area to work on and for specifically like people who understand the field to work on, like I think this is an incredibly important decade in the field, is the fact that we have technology now that demonstrably can change lifespan. Like we know in mice many different ways to increase lifespan and it's plausible that some of those technologies translate over to humans. And so this means that for the first time in all of human history, we have a pretty clear handle on like the idea that lifespan is changeable. And this will be the, the, the decades in which we demonstrate, you know, if it's possible that that translates to humans. Now, we're not going to live, I don't think, like thousands of years more from therapies developed in the next decade. Like I don't, it's not going to be very obvious. But the point is like scientifically, plausibly demonstrating that in humans is absolutely the most important thing we can do in the field in this lifetime um, in order to change this widely held belief that lifespan is somehow a fixed parameter and not changeable. Cool. Interesting. Yeah, that actually makes me want to dive more into um, the kinds of increases in lifespan that we have seen so far that make us think that like, actually, this is a thing to think about now. Uh, It is relevant. It is a thing that science like can touch. Because I suspect that many people's biggest objection to anti-aging work is that they think nothing useful can be done and aging is just like a part of life. Uh, So maybe we should address that right off the bat. I guess fundamentally, why do you believe it's technically feasible to work on ending aging? Um, I mean, it just obvious, like, it's sort of like, I could like give multiple different lines of argument here, but it just 
obviously is. And I think that that should be the prior and that like proving that it isn't like should really be a pretty high burden of proof. And that somehow we're in this really weird world where like that's the default belief. And then kind of like you have to fight to somehow prove this thing, which I think is like scientifically kind of just more plausible. So a couple different things. One is like just physically, there's really no physical reason like that demonstrates that this is impossible. Like there's just, you can talk about the second law all you want, but that applies to global, not local systems. And so like, you know, we are a collection of 10 to the 27 atoms. Might be pretty hard, but like, you know, the, the question is just, can we keep those in some configuration that like resembles health? And like, there's just no physical argument that that is impossible. So if anyone says something like that, I just think that they're not like thinking in a way that's like physically reasonable. It might be quite hard, but like, it's definitely not physically impossible. So then the question is, well, how hard is it? And you know, Fair point. Like up until the 70s, I would have been like, damn, probably, you know, that's, I think as a kid, my youthful enthusiasm might not have translated as a practical adult into kind of the same belief. I might have been like, well, really, if we look at what we have to work with, there's just nothing that's making anything live longer. Lifespan empirically seems pretty fixed. And so while this might be physically possible, it seems practically impossible. The really, really weird thing, and I honestly sometimes just kick myself for what decade I got to be born in, is like... This is the decade where we saw a bunch of things happen that were really surprising. And I can't emphasize how surprising they are. Like, again, as a child, not knowing anything about biology, I kind of expected these things to potentially be true. But as an adult, knowing a lot more about the number of atoms that are working together to make us humans, it's completely mind-blowing. Like, to, to just give one anecdote, and we can dive much more into different areas— in the 1980s and the 1990s, um, researchers zapped a bunch of tiny worms. Um, and these were worms that have like thousands of cells compared to our like you know trillions of cells. You know these worms have no blood, no bones, no. They're just completely different from us, as big as your like fingernail. They zapped them with um, rays that uh, mutated them randomly. They they found worm mutants that lived longer. In some cases, about twofold longer than normal, um, or you know with eventual mutants about twofold longer than normal, and. If you change the same gene that was found in that screen in a mouse, the mouse lives longer. That is one of the most insane things I have ever heard. That is insane. Even if you cared about longevity and engineering longevity, like that kind of single gene control of lifespan and translation across the species barrier is insane. Now, I'm not arguing that that's how we'll live a very long time is that single gene type strategy. But just to give an example of what we see in the field, it's like shouldn't be true. It really shouldn't. Cool. Yeah, I do find that extremely mind-blowing already. But actually, I want to back up just a minute and ask a very basic question. Uh, what is aging? I have some sense that it's things like our cells get worse at replicating, and sometimes there are diseases that cause end-of-life that are more likely to hit people when they're older. But I think I still feel confused about the fundamental thing. Uh, can you talk a bit about what aging is exactly? I, I think, like, I can, but I, I want to object to the question and, <laughs> okay. like, say something else first, but I will answer your question. Sure. And the thing that I want to say is, like, I just don't think about it that way. I mean, I do in many practical ways. You have to frame things that way in the context of drug development. But the question I care about is, like, what do I want to do? Like, when I'm 80, how strong do I want to be? Okay, and then if I want to be that strong, how well do my muscles have to work? Okay, and then if that's true, like, what would they have to look like at the cellular level for that to be true? And then, okay, like, what do we have to do to make that happen? That's really the, like, I in my head, it's much more about agency and, like, what choice do I have over my health? And, like, even if I live the same number of years, you know, can I live 
as an 80-year-old running every day happily, you know, like with my grandkids. Like that that's much more the question in my mind than like the scientific question, which is at the core of our field and very interesting, but different of what is aging. Right. Now, the reason that what is aging question is hard is because um, we don't, I mean, we have a million different definitions and they're all for different use cases. Aging is partially programmed in many organisms that we see and um, partially a random accumulation of damage that just, you know, like, like, like I think you, you can try and answer that question with like how much of it is programmed and how much of it is not programmed. You can answer it a lot of different ways, but but I, I really don't care about, I mean, I, I care about the question obviously a lot of my whole life, but I, <laughs> the question I really care about is like, what do I want to be doing at what age and how well? And it, it's really more of an engineering approach almost to then work backwards from that question to what do we have to do to get there? Right. Okay. 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 So just to make sure I'm, I'm totally understanding now, it's like, I'm probably hopefully going to live to be 80. There are a bunch of things about being 80 uh, for many people that make their lives worse. And uh, we've just accepted that those things are all going to happen to us uh, in a way that we haven't done for things like getting cancer when I'm 30. We've like not accepted that we're willing to either die prematurely or have a lower quality of life. We're like, no, we're going to develop cures. And so this is like, let's not accept that we're going to be uh, potentially physically weaker. Um, even I guess that we're going to have like like white hair. <laughs> let's like give ourselves the option to, to see if we can develop technologies that give us choices about how we spend our 80th year uh, and maybe our 90th and 100th. Exactly. It's like making chronological age not a risk factor for health, essentially. You know, it's like if someone were smoking a lot and like getting, you know, a type of cancer because of related to that, we might be like, well, maybe we should, you know, either try and decouple the relationship between smoking. We'd have some opinion on whether this was a good thing or not. But the fact that chronological age, we're just kind of, it's just rampantly ages. We're just like chronological age just should lead, I guess, to very much worse health. And that's the one category of risk factor that we kind of don't care about because, it's just how things are. And I think I think there are very deep reasons why we historically have never questioned that because I think it's a healthy thing to do psychologically when you can't change it. It's extremely healthy to have that reaction. But the problem is when technology forces you to ask a new question, you kind of have to face some of those biases and actually like interrogate them a bit more rationally. And I think that's kind of what's literally occurring in society. We'll start to, it's kind of, we're in the middle of the beginning stages of that, I think. Cool. That makes a bunch of sense to me now. I guess when you talk about wanting to solve or end aging, are you basically saying that you want to make humans immortal or is that uh, is that not the thing? So, I mean, I would say I've, I mean, I'm 29 now and I, I, I started working in this field professionally when I was like 12 on some level. And obviously my answer to that has completely changed over time. Like when I was a child, I was like, I'm going to find the way for us all to live forever and then my family will not die and I will be a hero and that's you know a good life like, like you just you, know, you have a very immature i mean god god bless that version of myself but like it's a very you know young take now having seen a lot more stuff it's like i think i believe much more in agency over this question of how long we live and when we die like i can understand somebody who might be in a lot of pain that they feel you know or like i can i can really understand and support things like dignitas to the same extent that i would support longevity research. I don't have any opinion on how long someone should live. Hmm. But I do have an opinion on like not accepting 
like an evolved number of years, there's no reason why this number of years that we currently have by default is the correct one for by any parameter that we care about. It just happened to be the number of years that we got from like a very different evolutionary kind of environment than the one that we are in today. Uh, it could plausibly be that like everyone living a thousand years is a great thing for society. Again, not claiming that we have a way to get there with current technologies, but I'm just saying like there's no reason why, you know, on the order of 70 to 80 years is like a constant and like this is the good number of years for people to live in a great society. Um, and I believe very strongly that like questioning that is good. Yeah, I still hear like voices in my head uh, objecting for just like reasons we can get into something like, but like living to a thousand will, I don't know, make make your time on earth less special. I don't know, something like that. And we can get into that. But I think that is, your explanation does really, really speak to me. I think I feel like very sold on like, yeah, a life expectancy of 75 is arbitrary. Uh, it didn't used to be 75. It used to be uh, like 30 and then 40 and then 50. And like, I think it's great that it's 75 now and not 40. I'm glad we didn't like accept that like 40 is just like the natural age to die. So yeah, I feel like broadly bought in. But uh, let's come back to some objections people might have in a second. Staying with kind of the basic case for this, do you think about quantifying the benefits of reducing aging? Is that kind of a way you think about it or not necessarily? In my mind, I mean, you have to understand, like I've been, this has been my life for 17 years at this point, like ever since I was a kid. So when I think about why, I wish that I could give like a one sentence quick answer. That's my true reason for believing that. But really it's a hundred different things and all of them feel extremely strong. So if it's okay, I'll just try and describe like a subset of them. Great. I mean, I think the first and the one that feels the most true to me, um, because it was the first thing I ever felt was just like, I think thinking about death or losing someone that you love. I mean, if I think about the strongest emotions I've ever felt, like that's really one of them. And I think we have a really deep human intuition about losing somebody. I, I think there are some deaths that might be good. You know, like maybe someone has is ready to die. They pass in a very peaceful way. And like maybe there's a human intuition that that's good. And I don't, I don't actually have any like disagreement with that thought. But I think many deaths are not good deaths. Like many deaths involve a lot of pain and suffering at the end. You know, one person I love is Satoshi Kon. He's a famous animator. He made my favorite movie ever, Prika. And he died, you know, quite young before he was able to finish his final film, which had, you know, this whole storyboard. And it may never be made this huge, beautiful masterpiece that he was so excited to make. Mm. I don't think that was a good death. And I don't think that's a death that Satoshi would have chosen for himself. And I think the grief that I feel like when I consider that is, is like a really important thing to listen to. Um, and so again, I, I've, I'm old enough now to not think that the, the goal here is to eliminate the concept of death from humanity. I think it's one that we don't know how to think about yet. But I, I do feel quite strongly that like giving people the choice over how how long they live is, is something that, or, or just kind of removing this thing that we all just kind of have to deal with in a way that can sometimes be feel quite bad, I think, something to care about. And there's a whole side quest there. Sorry, I'm rambling a bit, but there's about suffering and whether it's good or not. But I'll just, I just think the idea that when you think about death, there's something there that's just a human intuition that's worth listening to. So when I was 12, that was the first thing that I think was just a guiding principle. I think like as I got older, another thing that felt like really clear to me was just that um, this was an area of society where there's kind of a burgeoning thing that's going to change here that maybe one of the most important transitions humanity has ever gone through. Like, I mean, to be clear, I totally think that if we 
do some cool AI stuff, and that's an important transition. That might be a more important one. Who knows? Um, but I do think transitioning from um, limited, finite lifespans to a kind of much more unbounded sort of uh, feeling, uh, to me, that's one of the most interesting things society can do. And, and I think the thing that became clear to me working on this in my teens was that no one is thinking about this rationally, or almost no one is. I kind of assumed that people were when I was a kid, but I, I think that the technology is so new that it hasn't really hit yet. And the reasons for changing beliefs around how likely this is going to be really haven't hit yet. And so I think like often I'll just feel kind of like this frantic person trying to be like, hey, no, 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 no. But like really this time something is happening that we need to pay attention to. And so there's just kind of this feeling of like, well, this is happening, but like the more we delay it, the more bad things could happen to people who don't get these technologies and sort of, so there's there's just like this element of like, there's this huge thing that's going to happen and like, it's just going to happen anyway. But like, we really need to be thoughtful about, you know, trying to make it happen well and happen sooner so that, you know, pe- more people don't suffer uh, because they don't have access to it. Right. Yeah. Were, were there other reasons? And then maybe the last one, I think, as I've gotten older, has moved to being much less of a fear-based reason. Like, oh gosh, there's this terrible thing that we need to avoid and much more excitement and possibility around the future. Like I think, you know, there are, I would dearly love to understand as much mathematics as a field medalist, and I probably never will in my lifetime, um, you know, at the current pace. It would be so wonderful to have um, more time to be able to do those projects, to be able to, you know, build projects over very long time scales, um, to be with the ones you love, you know, and have relationships that last that long. I think it's deeply scary on some level, but also just deeply interesting and fascinating to think about how that would feel. And there's a sense of unbounded possibility. And then lastly, also, you know, in game theory, I love how, you know, often um, a cooperative strategy is not effective if there's some limited, finite, known number of moves. Right. But if the number of moves is unlimited and, un- and unknown, um, often it then switches over to be that you should be a cooperator, not a defector. And I'm very interested in how societies change kind of in that context as well. Oh, I love that. Oh, there's so much there. I find that just really inspiring. And uh, I know the the kind of game theory that you're talking about. Um, and that is an extremely cool uh, application of it that I'd never thought of. Just like, if humans have much, much, much longer lifespans, uh, such that like, the gains they can get for getting kind of multiple interactions with other humans um, could be uh, much, much bigger because they've got much longer uh, on Earth, then maybe society is just like much, much more cooperative. Amazing. Okay. So I guess that's kind of the basic case or the case that's really compelled you. I'm wondering if you can paint uh, a kind of realistic but optimistic vision uh, for what it would look like for kind of an ordinary listener uh, if this all goes well. So what products might come out at what times and what impact would they have? Um, That's a lot of questions, so we can do them one at a time. What kinds of products should we be imagining? Yeah, so I can describe what I would have thought before like ML stuff started kicking off. And then I would give the caveat that I have absolutely no idea what will happen in the world if that continues to progress at some rate. Like all of the predictions that I would make are based on timelines that don't take those factors into account. So the baseline prediction, I think in the absence of rapid acceleration from like new technology, including ML, was basically that I think in our lifetime, so like in the next, let's say, couple decades, aka therapies that would be available you know, to us and, and would have efficacy you know, a couple decades out, you're not going to see hundreds of years, a doubling of lifespan, plausibly even you won't see decades added to life. 
But I think the the there's a couple of things that inspire me in the next few decades. One is I think giving people, um, let's say like age 50 or older, just enormously more agency over their health and well-being. Um, so it's very inspiring to me to think about um, someone starting a second career. I think folks have talked about like, why not get a PhD at any point in your life? Or like, why not go become an amazing artist? Like could Picasso arise, you know, at age 50, you know, in a population? And I think often the reasons that people in that age range I actually feel really angry about this. I think often people are like, oh, older people don't have good ideas. They're just dumb. Like, you know, the younger people are somehow like have a blank slate and that equals like, and there's some of that. But also if you're over age 50, I mean, you just have a lot more physical disability to deal with. Not a lot at that age, but like you're starting to feel the impact. You have to be much more mindful of your health. You can't pull all-nighters. Like you have all of these just like physical things going on that indeed make it much harder to come up with good new ideas and to pursue them amorously. Like this is this is definitely a, like there, there's definitely, you know, maybe a blank slate component, but also a real physical component. And so I would like to even the playing field, you know, um, <laughs> for people of any age to have like the most adventurous point of their lives and to feel physically able to embrace that. Like, I think there are real ways in which lack of energy can impact your ability to do great work. And, you know, it'd be really cool if, you know, like, for example, everyone's parents could have, like, an incredible second career where they're, like, your direct competitors, you know, in industry or something, or kind of, like, amazing artists. So that's one thing. Cool. Yeah. Just quickly. I I just really like the thought experiment of, like, what would someone who is 60 years old do if they, like, had had their life as it was to that moment, but also now had the, like, energy and physical strength of a 20-year-old? Like, it does feel just, like, completely different and non-obvious that, like, what they do is retire. (laughs) Like, seems like the world is then their oyster, and that seems amazing. Exactly. And it makes me really angry, actually, because I think there's a lot of forms of physical disability that we treat as we, we, we kind of like explicitly like I would never tell somebody who was, you know, physically disabled in some way that like they they couldn't do something inherently. I, I feel actually pretty angry about us saying like because you're over 50, you can't think creatively. Like I think that is also a very, very, very harmful and bad stereotype or something. The other thing that I would say that's coming in terms of ways that uh, longevity will change the world in the next couple decades is just social change. Like, we may plausibly have longevity drugs for dogs, um, as in drugs that say lifespan extension on the label, which we can talk about later. Um, Again, those are not finally approved, um, but we may have those, you know, at some point in the next decade. And I think we may also show for the first time that we can make drugs that make humans live longer, again, by very small amounts, but that, that we have control over that in the next decade. And I think that will kind of kick off Um, a process of social change around our approach to longevity. That's also quite interesting. So by default, there were no huge revolutions. I mean, no huge revolutions in terms of like, we're all going to live forever. It's going to be amazing. But in my mind, these are two things that are incredibly like revolutionary because they're the seeds of things to come. Right. Is there anything that comes to mind to you for like reasons this is super important or like ways people think about this incorrectly that we haven't covered yet? I think something that feels very active for me in terms of reasons why it's important is I care a lot about why people don't work on things that seem to be important for other reasons. And I think I just, there's been, again, nothing more compelling to me than I think really spending a lot of time, again, my whole life really with the question of why, why is it that most people would not agree? And this is made more objections that this is an interesting thing to work on. And I think like, I think I just feel very passionately that the reason is not good enough. It's sort of like, I, I, I think I feel very passionately that longevity should be the default, like, kind of assumption and that there should be really good reasons for slowing or stopping progress on things that decrease suffering or give people more agency over how long they live. I think that this is like, 
just incredible. Like in my mind, there's nothing, nothing that we care about more than kind of these things. And like it, but we live in a society where it's inverted, where you default think that there should be some hard limit on these things that we really care about. And that, you know, like it's, it's bad to question this. And I just really, really care about a world where we invert that. And it's, you know, instead that like, you have to have a really good reason not to um, give people more years of healthy life. Yeah. Yeah. Let's actually, let's talk about some of those objections that people will have. So I guess many people suppose that folks would have progressively less fulfilling lives on the margin uh, as they lived longer. Or I guess that it would demotivate people to live forever. Um, Sometimes people say something along the lines of uh, like death gives life meaning. And I have some, yeah, I have some part of me that has that feeling. Uh, what's, What's your reaction to that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can for sure promise you that no medicine is going to give you immortality. Okay, like that's yeah. something I can 100% guarantee. So what we're not talking about here, um, which I think is maybe one of the most important distinctions to make, is eliminating death. Again, mm. no medicine can give you that, and that's not on the table. You know, what we're talking about instead is um, agency over how long you live and, I guess, some more agency over, like, when you might die from natural causes. Like, again, just the base rate of accidents equals even if medicine cured all your other problems, like, you'd still have to work pretty hard, <laughs> you know, to and be a continuing process. So just to be clear, you know, there's no magic button that we're going to create that's going to fix that problem. Right. How about, um, how about just, like, this kind of feeling less fulfilled uh, in your 400th year relative to your 200th? I guess you might, I can imagine you making two arguments. One is like, well, then you can, you can choose to, die uh, at any point. Yeah, we can like make that an option. Um, Or I can imagine you making the argument that's like, I don't know, we don't know what it's like to live to 400. Maybe it's actually freaking great. And um, assuming that like, we're going to be bored with life by by 400 is is assuming something that we just really, really can't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like there's an answer I should give and there's an answer like I want to give. And like the answer that I feel like I should give is kind of what you said. We don't well, if you don't like it, then you don't have to stick around, but also probably good to have the option. I think an answer that I should give is like, that's not a good enough reason. Like, you know, frankly, that might be true for you. One might be a little bit bored, but that is like absolutely not a good enough reason not to develop medicines that could save lives. Like just definitely doesn't even begin to pass the cut. And so if you want to like make an argument against that or against spending a lot of time and energy doing that, the reason needs to be a lot better than like we might be a bit bored as society. I, I take that very seriously to be clear. Like, I mean, I think even living to like age 30 is like actually difficult. You know, like you, there's a lot of stuff you go through in life and it's, life is hard. But um, I just think you know, you, we're not going to stop medical progress because of these specific, I don't think they're good enough objections. But then I, I think the other thing I want to say is just like, I mean, I totally empathize with that point of view. Like again, like, you know, even living a normal lifespan, you encounter grief and hardship and boredom. And these things are all part of our experience. But I mean, I just want to be optimistic about like, the idea that you can grow and the idea that, you know, there's so much to explore and so much to see and that we should try to make a world that we would want to live in. Like, I, I can't argue that life is worth living, but I can say that I think we should try to make it worth living and to act, you know, you know, towards that. And I think this is in line with that value. And so it's like, yeah, can you, can you like fix all spiritual problems? Like, totally not. But like, should you try? Like, and should you act as though you, you know, perhaps like can go in that direction? I, I just personally believe that you should, you know? Yeah, I find that really compelling. I guess turning to another objection, uh, some people might have environmental concerns uh, about, I don't know, growing population if we stopped dying uh, at the rate we do now. Um, How much does that worry you personally? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of population stuff that is going to be an issue. Like, 
even if we have longevity technology or not on some level, like I think reproduction rates, you know, like we really don't know how they would change, whether they would drop dramatically. I mean, you do, I think, see that trend a lot. Um, maybe we would prefer to have, you know, more young people than more older people. And this is something that I think about a lot. But I guess personally, I guess having tried to work on a hard problem for 17 years, this has really been something that's taken a while. Like, I'm just like, you really don't know how to solve things until you try. But like, you really shouldn't just assume that you can't find like a good way to address a problem. And I think, you know, in this context, like, you know, let's say we stayed on this planet forever. Like, I just, I, I really think there are a lot of ways that technology can help us think about how to solve these problems. Again, that are very complicated and difficult. I mean, the technology is bad, but like, I just, like, there's definitely no reason why I think the reason is still not good enough. I guess I have to have a, to me, like the, like I'm like thinking about someone that I love, like someone in my family. And I'm like, the reason for me not to try everything that I can to help give them this, you know, the, the idea of a problem that like, we're not sure that we can solve, but we might be able to. It's like, in my mind, that's just something that we have to try and like figure out. It's like, I feel really passionately that I wouldn't like withhold a medicine from somebody that I love because of the potential of the future problem that like we think is quite difficult but isn't obviously insolvable. And, and while at the same time I acknowledge that like, you know, maybe the world will be overall worse, you know, if we try to do this, I really, I really, you know, again, having worked on a hard problem for 17 years, know how hard it is to even solve that problem. And I think what you're talking about on a social level is, you know, a much larger problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense to me. It's just like, again, this like, there's a very very naturally instinctive feeling about this particular medical intervention that's extending life. But like, uh, like you said, we don't not try to save people's lives uh, right now. Uh, if someone is 30 and has cancer, we try to save them, even if that is going to mean like population continues to grow and then we have to solve population growth somehow. Yeah, I think the answer, again, that I should give is that, you know, there are probably technical solutions to a lot of the problems that, you know, people pose. And I think it's very plausible that we can address them in ways that make, you know, society better. But the answer that I feel is honest is just, I think we should fight for every life, you know, that doesn't want to go. I mean, I just really, really feel it quite strongly. And I don't, there's nothing that I've ever, I just really, that's a core value that I guess I have personally. And I think everyone deserves to, you know, to live, you know, in the way that they want. Like, I just... You know, I, mean? I just think that's such a core human thing. Yeah, no, I think that, well, it lands really well with me, and I, I imagine it will land well with others. Maybe this one's a bit out of left field, but another objection you might encounter, at least in some circles, is that um, you might not actually think that humans will remain kind of biological, fleshy humans for so long. Yeah. Um, so if we develop the capability to, I don't know, upload our brains um, and live as digital people, for example. So yeah, anti-aging technology might become obsolete relatively fast. Does that sound plausible to you? Does that sound like a reason not to work on this? Oh, yeah. I mean, I <laughs> in the past uh, yeah, a couple of years, I've spent a lot of time, I guess, grappling these questions personally. Because, I mean, it's, it's a real question, right? Like, if that were true, I'd just be like, well, great. I guess those guys will figure it out. You know, we're good on the biology. Um, biology is pretty hard, so no reason to keep working on it. I mean, unless for fun, if, if you don't have to. But I think the, the core problem for me is you really got to be sure. You know, it's like, I, I think as humans, we have this feeling that continuous identity is pretty great. A lot of our beliefs and everything is kind of built around that as a core. And everything that deviates from that, you kind of have to be pretty sure a philosophical position to commit to it. So, like, let's say I did, like, destructive uploading. You know, maybe I'm, like, 99% sure. But just in case there's some reality to continue your consciousness that, like, we just hadn't philosophically figured out yet, I'd really hate to give up the ghost, you know, before we'd done that. And so, in my mind, longevity is always this thing of, well, you know, just in case. Like, mm -hmm. 
you know, just maybe before we make all these transitions, we should just live long enough that we can get philosophically wise enough that we can, like, figure a lot of the stuff out. And then, heck, like, you know, why not do whatever? But, like, am I going to commit to, like, a theory of consciousness, you know, like, now? I mean, definitely a lot of people might be, but I certainly wouldn't. And I think there's a question of, like, what is humanity? What are we as humans? What's special about us? So we have no idea what the answer to that is. And so it's sort of just like, you know, why not stick around long enough to figure that out before you make a big transition? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So just to make sure um, that everyone can follow, is the idea there in particular that, um, for example, if we did kind of develop what we thought was the capability to upload brains, some people think that uploading your brain um, to something digital would be in some ways not a kind of stable transition from like you uh, as you are now to something that's also you but like whatever in the cloud um is that is that the worry and you're just like yeah maybe maybe it will be me and maybe I'll feel like me and maybe I'll just like go on living my life but I won't have a body that like sometimes breaks but like I don't want to bet my life or many other people's lives on that being the way philosophy turns out yeah I mean I I can give I guess more of a framework for the different approaches um before kind of I guess stating uh that view again Basically, the question of longevity is related to the question of what you care about preserving. And I'd say most people in society kind of default believe that something about some continuity of consciousness, like, is important. And the idea of sleeping sometimes kind of makes this a question or the idea of anesthesia can kind of question, well, what do we really mean by that? But there's something about the continuity of consciousness. Like, I just want to keep existing as me. That seems to be what most people care about. There's a subset of, the, of other people who are maybe either Buddhist or really into uploading or uh, sort of some kind of um, other way of thinking about just information as identity who might say, I really just care about like what I would do otherwise still existing or like the information that I am still existing and propagating. And so if I, this kind of comes back to the, um, the Parfit thought experiment of if I could make a copy of myself that went to Mars because I want to go to Mars and then, but I have to kill my current self, you know, immediately after I made that copy, would I do that? And like, these are people who would say, yes, like they would do that. Yeah. This is one of my favorite thought experiments. Exactly. And, you know, actually it's interesting. Like, I think personally I've flipped to kind of be more in that camp. I used to be very much in the former camp. And so it's been weird working on longevity and being like, well, but you know, maybe it's just the continuity thing is not so important. And then the last thing um, is kind of people who are maybe in between where they think, okay, Maybe we could upload ourselves, but there's some continuity that we think is still important. And so if we could, like, let's say gradually swap out neurons with, like, cyber components or kind of just very gradually kind of transition our brains, like, there's something about the continuity there that's important to preserving something. So those are kind of, you know, and again, I'm not an expert in this field, but those are different ways that you can think about what you want to preserve. Now, the reason that I still work on longevity, literally, even though I've switched over to, I think, default believing that I would do the powerful thought experiment, is just in case. You know, it's like, I don't know, again, I'm 29, have been thinking about this for a couple years, decided this thing might be true, but like, would I want this version of myself to make that decision or like a much older version of myself who had some more time to kind of think about the question you know, it's, it's just like these are really big things to kind of commit your life to. And I think like, you know, like it kind of seems like one might be true, but we're not really sure. Yeah, it's one thing for me to be like, this is a fun thought experiment. I feel like I would totally, I don't know, if you told me that like, yes, it's guaranteed that when you make a copy of yourself on Mars, like all of the kind of memories, all of the kind of like preferences I have are all going to be copied so perfectly that like I feel like I am just exactly myself on Mars. It's like one thing to think about that thought experiment and be like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that will just 
just feel like basically me waking up or like maybe I just won't even notice. Uh, and I'm fine letting my earth self die if that's what has to happen to like make that copy. Uh, it's another thing to be like, I'm gonna decide not to pursue research uh, that will help end aging for human physical bodies because I think probably that kind of philosophy experiment is plausible and shakes out that way. And like my personal view is like, I think maybe I would still be myself. Yeah. I mean, like what I would say is if no one was working on uploading, I would be sad for sure. But I think like the allocation of effort is kind of um, like it's it's in so many ways an easier problem. I mean, maybe the uploading folks would hate me for saying this, but I think it's a little bit of an easier problem than kind of like keeping like 10 to the 27 atoms roughly in the correct configuration over hundreds of years. And so I'm kind of fine with spending a lot of time on the ladder still, even given uploading, because I think that it's kind of default. It's like the default safest thing to do. And then like maybe once you're really sure, you can do the other thing. Right. Okay. Another objection. Um, so AI and kind of ML advances uh, might help us figure out much faster ways to do scientific research. Um, should we just focus on AI for now and defer applications like anti-aging research to uh, a time when AI can just do most of the work? Yeah. Welcome to, I guess my life really like I, I think about this like or there's a period I think last couple of years where I was thinking about this every day and I think there's always a question of like are you doing something just because of sunk cost um, and you know to be honest like working in this field is extremely hard so it's sort of like maybe it's like oh it'd be great to like take of it you know if it could just um, but I think there's a couple of things there's a lot of questions about like what's going on in the human existence and like what is it about this thing that we think we want to preserve that we have no clue about and I think, like, there's a world where we just never answer those questions and skip over them and then maybe lose, like, some of the most important things that we treasure as humans. Maybe AI systems will take over everything and then have some objective value function that determines, like, you know, what happens. Um, but at least to the degree at which society still matters in that world, like, you know, like, society, I think, really needs to get on board with what happens here for it to happen. And I think 90% of the battle longevity is actually social, like, just kind of changing a old perception that's just about to be updated. So, you know, I, and I think that, like, kind of really, like, individuals matter a lot to that right now. Like, it kind of feels like we're at the beginning stages, let's say, like, IVF, for like, maybe a few people made a big difference to, like, women's reproductive health down the line. But, like, would an AI system care that much about, like, a woman's reproductive Like, you know, sort of, like, these are human values that we're figuring out. It, it's really, like, the case that I think the people who build the most important companies in this space or kind of research projects in this space in the next decades, like, will determine, I think, a lot about how society looks in this respect, um, even independent of, like, ML progress. Okay, let's move to what I suspect is people's biggest objection to anti-aging work, which is that um, they think, yeah, nothing useful can be done, and aging is just an inevitable part of life. Why do you believe it's technically feasible? Okay, well, I'm just going to give a long answer to this question, because in my mind, this is, yeah, this is one of the biggest things. So number one, just to kind of um, set the stage, when I was a kid, one of the things that convinced me that this was a plausible thing to work on was I used to believe that everyone lived to be exactly the same age. Like, I used to think that oh. everyone lived to be 10 years old, and then they all <laughs> died at exactly 10 years old, because obviously there must be some order to the world, right? There's some reason why we all died at a certain age. I remember being so shocked to learn that actually people die at different ages, and that also we do not know why. At its heart, this kind of illustrates, you know, like, like again, if everyone lived exactly some amount of time and then died exactly the same time, like maybe I'd be a little bit less convinced that this was like a plausible parameter to vary. But this is already a variable parameter and various reasons of genetics and environment. So like proof positive, genetics and environment do determine, you know, to some extent how long we live, um, number one. And, you know, environment is something that, again, we could change. And then just number two, like, 
we are just some number of atoms that need to be in the correct configuration. Like, and that's an argument that only works on like, you know, universal time scales. You know, maybe we can't <laughs> change all those atoms. But like, it's just, there's no physical, again, reason why this is not plausible. And then again, number three, we've made mice live like 60% longer than normal with single genetic mutations. That's one of the most mind-blowing things I've ever heard in all of biology. And nothing that you could have ever said to convince me theoretically before that empirical discovery as a biologist, you know, like as someone in biology would have ever convinced me that that was true before seeing that fact. So just factually, stuff is happening that we have no idea what it is, but it's like lifespan is just really easy to change in a lot of animals. I, I think the core thing that people are asking when they ask that is like, okay, great, so we can change it a bit today, but like, do we have the tools to live like a lot longer? And the answer is like, heck no, like we definitely do not have those tools today. Like those are the things that we're trying to build. And like by default, I think progress in biology might result in those tools in like hundreds of years, again, accepting like progress in ML. But like, you know, that's still, that's not like nothing. And I think that like the more that we irrationally allocate effort today, like the less that we'll have those tools quickly in the future. So it still really matters to get things right today. Yeah, yeah. The the last point about the fact that we can actually already influence lifespan in a number of animals is, I think, the thing I personally found most mind-blowing when looking into this. I actually think most people don't know that we can influence lifespan a little bit in some animals. So um, maybe we could talk about that a bit. Um, so on, on your website, you have this incredible list of 95 things that make mice live longer, um, quite a lot longer in some cases. And I want to mention a few of them so that people get the idea uh, that, yeah, not only do some of these increase lifespan significantly, um, some of them are also drugs already approved for use in humans for various diseases today. Um, so for example, removing senescent cells increases mice lifespan by 135%. And maybe just so we kind of understand what that even means a bit better, um, could you say more about that? Like, what are senescent cells and what removing them entails? Sure. I would say this is a field that we don't yet know translates to humans. So we don't yet know if this work will, like, be relevant to humans. And also, I think, like, there's a lot of caveats around the work that's been done in mice. Um, but, I, I, sorry, I'm just caveating because I'm, you know, you want to do that when you're a scientist. But, like, basically, a subset of your cells might accumulate quite a bit more damage or, like, have very specific phenotypes that are bad with age. And they seem to kind of, like both themselves, you know, not be quite healthy enough, but like maybe also make the environment around them a little bit unhealthy. If you just target these cells in particular and eliminate them with genetic tools in mice, you can make the mice a lot healthier, you know, during an aged part of life. And I think that, I mean, honestly, like these results were very surprising to me. Like like the first results in this field were in uh, accelerated aged mice, the mice that were um, artificially aged. And I was like, okay, like fine, whatever, you know, like maybe that works there, but it won't translate. And like, you just keep seeing, I, I think like, Income benefits. There's a lot of caveats to this. I think this feels like working out how important senescent cells are in, you know, human relevant indications. And so we, we still don't know how important they are there. But this is just a weird one where like aging keeps doing these things where you're just like, no one is like, this should work. Everyone is like, this is the weirdest thing that should work. I mean, to give an example, which I think everyone is talking about now. So probably a lot of your listeners actually have heard of this one more recently. You know, this lab expressed a set of factors which are kind of, you know, like, a little bit like cause cancer sometimes and, you know, sort of reprogram cells, you know, in a very extreme way, just cyclically in mice and allow them to, you know, like have these health benefits and kind of, you know, like just stuff that like just no one in their right mind would look at that and be like, yep, that's probably going to result in longer lived healthy mice, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, seems to affect aging in ways that we really wouldn't have expected. So like, I think I'm just trying to say like, look, like no one is arguing that like from first principle, you should believe that like eliminating just old cells or re reprogramming cells developmentally across the whole mouse, like in a really extreme way, it's going to make them live longer. 
But just weirdly, when we try crazy stuff like this, it seems to actually, you know, work some subset of the time. And again, no claim it will translate to humans, but just like, this is, again, this is empirical data. This is not us, you know, like I'm always like, this shouldn't, this is weird that it's happening. And I don't believe these results just shouldn't be true that this is working. Right, right. But it's this proof of concept, whether or not it actually works in humans. It's like lifespan is actually just like a malleable thing. And uh, when we poke around with some things that seem to be associated with lifespan, sometimes they actually just affect lifespan. And that's insane. Exactly. And and there are like use studies where, you, you know, you can just like mutate like a fraction of genes in organisms. It's like, yep, some of them make them just make the thing live longer. If you just you know, it's, it's, it's like not actually that hard to find genes that if you change, make an organism live longer. Now, again, this doesn't mean that they're going to live unbounded longer. It doesn't mean like immortality or like thousands of years. But like lifespan is really not that hard to change as a parameter, you know, like just empirically. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to drive that home by going through a few more examples. So um, giving mice the drugs rapamycin and metformin increases their lifespan by 110% and 106% respectively. And um, I think these are drugs that are approved for humans. Do we have any idea why these increase lifespan in, in mice? Oh, we have a bunch of theories. Uh, really? We, we have theories out the wazoo. But I mean, like, again, this is just you know, some guy went to the island of, Ra- I think, Rapa Nui, dug up some soil, found this, like, compound rapamycin. Randomly, it was, you know, kind of associated with pathways that caused him to test longevity and increases lifespan. And I can, there's so many different reasons why, like, that I could say buzzwords for. But I, my personal opinion is that, like, we really don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're, like, basically, there, there seem to be a few central genetic axes or pathways that a lot of these treatments hit. Like, for example, I mentioned a worm mutation it's kind of on the insulin IGF-1 axis, you know, and discovered in worms that translated to mice, also works in flies. And, like, that's kind of just a central genetic pathway that maybe a bunch of different things impinge on it. Hmm. In a similar way, there's something around, like, mTOR and, like, kind of nutrient sensing that we we think, like, is kind of a central pathway that a lot of things are impinging on. So I, I think typically we want to be able to try to it'll group, like, these interventions into categories. But, I, yeah, I would make no claim that we, we understand how they work in some really fundamental way. Okay, okay. Um, And I think we're actually going to talk about some of those kind of groups uh, of, yeah, kind of pathways that we've kind of learned over time do seem really related to aging and that maybe we can affect through different different technologies, but through different drugs. But um, maybe just a few more examples before we get there. Do you have a personal favorite example from the list? Is there a particular thing that has increased lifespan um, in some animal that uh, has stuck with you? I think this might be on the list is like methionine restriction is really interesting to me. Like, um, I think a lot of people have heard of the idea of caloric restriction where you eat less, quite a bit less, often like maybe 30% less than you would um, normally and um, get a corresponding increase in lifespan. This is actually the opposite of what I think people originally expected to see. They expected that like you'd eat less and like, you know, you'd be un- more unhealthy. But what's interesting is you can also just try and restrict specific components of diet and get uh, maybe a similar effect. I'm not sure if the effect is actually that same magnitude, but like, let's say you just restrict like one amino acid. Um, like methionine, for example, which is at the beginning of all proteins, I think all proteins, you kind of see a, some, a quite large increase in lifespan just from that as well. And so I, I'm very fascinated by this question of like, if we could just like make little enzymes that shoot up the methionine and, you know, our food, like, you know, would we be able to eat quite a bit, but also like have, you know, the benefit? I don't think that's a plausible thing to do, but it's a very interesting, I think, kind of finding that it's it's not, act, it might not actually be as much the total number of calories you eat as the dietary components. But again, this is an evolving field. And what I'm saying might not be something that everyone would agree with. Sure, 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 sure. Um, but it does seem true that reducing that particular part of a protein does have this um, lifespan increasing effect. Like that part is just like somewhat studied. I mean, maybe it's not like robustly, robustly studied, but there's some evidence for it. 
Yeah, and I think that's kind of where the frustration comes in, I think, if you're in the field. Because it's like, I think a lot of people will be like, oh, well, you know, collection doesn't count because you're just kind of like decreasing the total amount of stuff the organism does. And so that's kind of, it's just kind of a normal, like, but then you look at a lot of what's going on. And it's like, no, this is a very complex pathway that's responding to changes in like nutrient content and doing a lot of very complex things. And so, like, it's not like, you know, we're just slowing everything down. I mean, I think you can make that argument, for example, you know, maybe with temperature. Like, it's actually what's in worms. If you increase temperature, they live a bit shorter. If you decrease temperature, they live a little bit longer. And so it's like they're literally slowing stuff down, you know, just like literally like that is what is happening. Wow. Like, there's just all this weird stuff where you like, I think people tend to have very simplistic ideas where it's like, oh, well, it's just something where we're slowing down some overall metabolic rate. And like that explains all of the longevity stuff. And so therefore, like, it's all kind of under the same umbrella and not that important. I, but I, I think I really want to argue for, you know, there's like an incredibly complex set of pathways that are responding here that are being tapped into when you see these effects. And like, it, so again, just increasing the wonder factor of like that this works at all is quite, quite unbelievable. Cool. Yeah. Just to make sure I understand when you, when you decrease uh, calories, some organisms seem to live longer. And again, to kind of echo what you've already said, that's surprising because um, I think the original study was like, uh, let's see if when you starve mice, um, they die earlier. That's kind of interesting because like some people don't have enough to eat. So like, let's see what the health effects of that are. Um, and then like to their surprise, mice actually lived longer. And that was like in itself, just a very surprising result. And then the the objection is like, that's just because, I don't know, the thing I'm picturing is like, if you were to slow your heart down, get the same number of heartbeats over your lifetime, but you'd like be able to do fewer things because uh, you're like, you'd be con constricted by like a, a heart that like couldn't like speed up to run or something. But the basic idea is like, you're just like slowing down all of the processes in a body by giving it less food. And that does prolong life, but that's not like a very useful or like exciting prolonging of life because the mouse is just going to like be sitting around conserving calories because it's starving. Is that kind of the objection? Yeah. Well, I think also people are kind of like, oh, well, I can see why that's true. Or like, they're like, oh, that's kind of obvious to me why it would be true. And I want to be like, no, like we, like we, like your body's a robot. Literally. <laughs> I mean, it, when you look at cells, you know, and you look at what's in cells, like it's a bunch of tiny little robots like running around and like this is what you're built of. And they're all working together in a really complex way to cause these effects. And it's not as simple as you would think. Right. But one last point that I want to make, because I think it's important for um, folks to understand is what we're talking about with all of this, everything on my website, everything we're talking about, this is not going to get us to thousands of years, et cetera. What we're talking about are the only things that we kind of know about now in the next couple decades that could get us the first longevity therapy. But the point is, like, there's a bunch of other stuff that we're not talking about because it's, like, way crazier and harder to reason about, you know. The things we're talking about, they're just kind of proof points that this is plausible at all that I think are very surprising. I don't want to imply that they are the things that will get us, you know, a lot more years of life. They're just the only things on the table for the next couple decades right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're not going to uh, live to 400 by restricting our calories. Uh, but it's evidence that, yeah, again, lifespan is malleable. Right. Like, like uh, maybe to say the uh, point as clearly as I can, no one is arguing that we're going to live to 200 with small molecules targeting like single genes. It's just insane that that's even on the table, like <laughs> that we're even talking about that even for a couple of years of life, like that, that's a strategy we could use blows my mind. 
Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, let's let's pivot from that actually to talking more about the science behind uh, this research. Um, so you've written about nine major areas of aging research, and we've got time to talk about some of them, but not all of them. But because I just find the list so mind blowing already, uh, I wanted to list the things that we're not going to talk about, so that if anyone's interested, they can go can go read up on them. We've already talked about caloric restriction, but yeah, basically a range of evidence suggests that eating less in a variety of ways can make you live longer. There's insulin or insulin-like growth factor, um, because apparently genetic pathways related to growth and insulin signaling are linked to aging. Autophagy is a thing I'd never heard about, but it's apparently the part of the cell that recycles all the waste and junk that accumulates within a cell um, that deteriorates with age, and so helping uh, that system do its job better might increase lifespan. The reproductive system apparently is involved. I guess it sounds like removing the ability to reproduce can increase lifespan. For example, removing a worm's gonads can increase lifespan by 60%, which is mind-blowing. Mitochondria might be related. Um, so these are the powerhouses of the cell. And apparently mitochondrial mutations impact lifespan. And then finally, a thing that I don't totally understand called sirtuins add tags to the structural protein balls that DNA wraps around. Um, and apparently these regulate aging. And I would love to talk about every single one of those, uh, because they are fascinating. Um, but that would take hours and hours and hours or days. So a few that I found like particularly interesting were parabiosis, uh, changing the brain itself. And actually, I guess if there are any of the things that we've already talked about that you uh, actually think are super, super interesting, we could talk about that as well. But uh, to start, maybe we start with parabiosis, which is where you literally join together two organisms. Uh, in the case of aging research, I think it's usually two organisms of different ages, so that they share their circulatory systems, so that all their blood kind of flows out of one into the other and then back again. Uh, so yeah, what's interesting about parabiosis for aging research? Um, I mean, this is the one that always is like the the lightning rod of the field, I would say. Um, really? I, I think of all the things that I would bet are going to be a huge deal in the field, like I'm definitely, it's not on my top 10 to be, or like it's no longer. I, oh, okay. Interesting. Just to give an example sure. of the kind of crazy stuff that you see showing up in longevity, if you take two mice and you, you suture together, you stitch together their vasculature between an old mouse and young mouse, which is like they're just kind of like Frankensteined onto each other. You see health benefits in many ways um, to the older mouse and in some ways like health problems in the younger mouse. Again, like just thinking about that for five minutes, like it's like who came up with that experiment, number one. <laughs> right. And then number two, you know, the fact that that works at all. And that's despite the fact that these mice are sutured together, like their sides are kind of connected. So you can imagine there's a lot of health problems that come along with that. Um, it's quite surprising. And I think, uh, I'm not an expert in this field or you know, any of these fields really, but like you, you, I think you can see a little bit of a uh, similar effect from just plasma injection. So even if you don't suture together the two mice, I think you can still see some positive benefit from just plasma injection. There's a way of talking about this field that's like very fun. But there, there's something I really want to say, which is just like, I now view it very differently than I think I did when I made, or like I have a very different framework for thinking about it, um, which is all about interventions and like what we can do. So sort of like, I think like what you see in that list and what a lot of aging literature is about is just like all the different data points of like areas that we can maybe explore. But then pragmatically, if you want to do something in the field, I think it's all about like the tools that we have at our disposal to affect human biology. And so from that lens, there's a couple of different frameworks that I want to mention. One is like length scale. So, you know, as humans, we're maybe like on a meter length scale. And, you know, 
like, there's kind of this question of, like, what length scale are you intervening at? And, like, how many tools do we have to do that well? You can maybe jump to the length scale, like, maybe down, like, six orders of magnitude to, like, a cell, or maybe, like, five orders of magnitude to, like, a cell. Um, think about, like, you know, replacing cells or, like, making things that target cells and overall just change cell state. You can think about, you know, going to a protein and trying to find things that would either make a protein better or kind of, like, make it do something in a cell. But, like, really, um, the exciting thing about modern biology is how many more tools we have to do this, which I think is the number one contributor to our ability to make any kind of progress towards human therapeutics at all compared to 10 years ago. Because you have to understand, when you look at these mouse studies, we can do all sorts of things with mice that we were absolutely not going to do with humans anytime soon. Like, we can change their genes, you know, every cell in their body from birth. And often, if you look at these studies, that's what you're doing. You know, you're not giving, there are fewer you're giving drugs, but often it's like you're just changing genes in, in cells. Hmm. But in, in humans, it's all about like, well, what can you do? And really, it, we're, we're in a completely unprecedented and exciting time because most of our human existence, we were just like grinding up plants. And then like, that's what we kind of had to give somebody. Then we figured out how to like, you know, get chemicals to be more sort of, I guess, pure. Um, in the 70s, we started being able to like take, you know, proteins and have bacteria make them and then like use those proteins as therapies, and they're enormous, like, you know, you go from, like, a 100-atom molecule to, like, a 100,000-atom molecule. Like, you can sure as heck do a lot more with that huge thing, which really is a robot if you really think about what you're looking at there. It's, like, this huge robot. And then now, you know, we're, we can um, take whole cells, program them with extraordinarily complex mechanisms, and inject them into people and expect them to do things, like, for example, go after cancers. Like, oh, my gosh, like, that's amazing. You know, we can um, repurpose viruses. Like, and so the point I want to make is, like, I think there's a really fun way to go through aging literature, which I enjoy and like love, which is spending a lot of time with all these data points that we have. Then when you switch over to the question of like, what are we going to do? The thing that I spend a lot of time, just most of my time actually feeling really excited about is just the number of tools at our disposal for changing human biology, many of which are like, you know, only on market or in the clinic as of like, you know, the past couple of decades and like only really plausible to work on, like gene therapy, you know, in, in a really kind of general way, you know, much more recently. Like you see companies assume that gene therapies will work, you know, for certain tissues now getting started that like just, that would have been left out of the room like decades ago. And so I think that's the that's the heart of when you're an operator in this field trying to make drugs, like what you spend most of your time kind of focused on. And then the question becomes, okay, like of all the different genes that have been screened in longevity on this list, can I just pick three, you know, like you, you do a lot of things about the biology, but it's sort of like, you know, you really have to have a modality that you could use to apply that because you can't just take a gene and make it different in every cell in a human body from scratch in a human yet or anytime in the next decade, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about uh, changing the brain itself. What does changing the brain have to do with aging? How can it help? I think I just, again, I want to be clear that I, I cite a lot of papers that I'd say um, are really exciting, but like, I think this is a field that's still very young. And so I don't want to make any, like, again, scientist caveat, like none of what I'm saying, you know, will obviously translate to humans with 100% certainty. There's just some genes that we've discovered, you know, generally, you have this story that this um, gene is helping an organism with longer, the protein that it makes by doing something in every cell in your body that's helping every cell. So this is pretty good. And it's just kind of weird when sometimes you just, you only express it in the brain or knock it out, and that also increases lifespan. It's just kind of like it kind of makes sense because maybe the brain is you know some limiter, but like it's just kind of weird. And there, there's also ways in which, for example, you know the brain can regulate temperature, and if you just change the brain to do that, like then you get maybe a little bit of extra lifespan. Like I just always thought that was so weird and interesting. Like like you know how much is your brain telling your body how long it can live? Obviously not 100, percent but like there's definitely a non-trivial amount where you just like you can do brain-specific things. Like, there's, there were a lot of papers a while ago that were, like, doing brain-specific knockouts of certain genes and, like, seeing effects. And, like, again, this might just be due to, like, 
things being secreted or kind of like signaled that are causing systemic effects. But like that, you know, like the fact that there is might potentially some systemic kind of signal or way in which like the brain is controlling longevity is really interesting, is, is just super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The fact that if you try to convince the brain that the temperature is actually higher or lower than it is, that that affects longevity. So it's not even it's not like a physical thing where like heat or cold negatively affects cells in your body. It's just like your brain is like, depending how hot or cold it is, I'm gonna decide to send signals that translate to me living less long or longer, which is just really weird. Do you think that this is like a promising area? Like, would you be excited about, yeah, interventions that try to convince your brain uh, of something that seems to make it tell the body to live longer or less long? Well, so again, this comes back to like rubber meets the road in drug development, which is like if I had to convince all the cells of any organ to do something, sure as heck would not probably pick the brain, <laughs> you know, in terms of like, because you, you have to get, you have to get the therapy in there. Like, if you were saying the liver, I'd be like, oh my God, yes, please. Like, you know, if we can just convince the liver of something with, uh, you know, a given therapy, I'm all over that. But, you know, the brain is a, is a very tricky beast in terms of like getting general, this could change, you know, in the future, but like, so no, actually, like I would, I would prefer not to have to convince the brain of something if I can. I would prefer literally any other organ, probably okay, okay. than the brain. Uh, maybe there's an exception to that, but yeah, it'd be. But but like biologically, it's very interesting. And so maybe what you could say, ask is, you know, is the brain secreting something or causing them to be secreted or signaled that I can mimic or create that will recreate that effect without having to actually recreate what happened in this experiment, which is to change a single gene in all the cells of the brain, you know, from birth in a mouse model. Right. Okay. Are there are there any kind of research areas, uh, like kind of these categories that we haven't talked about yet that you think are especially interesting? It's a good question. I think I think there's like a whole category that's hard to talk about because I think I really and I think no one in the field has any idea how it will play out or work, which is like you know this idea of like, can you replace whole organs? Like if an organ is so old, can you replace it with a younger version? And just like that's a way to help. And again, it's not at all feasible, I, I think in in some sense today to do that broadly because, you know, there's there's a lot of complications and organ transplant, et cetera. But, you know, I just want to flag that, like, it's insane that organ transplant is a thing that exists. Like, can you imagine, like, you know, we, we take organs from someone who has passed and, like, just put them into somebody else. And the fact that as a biological procedure that works at all <laughs> always blows my mind. Yeah. And so, you know, there's enough complications now that it's not an actually good intervention, but there is just this, I think everyone in the field sometimes is just kind of like, well, you know, like we're doing all this complicated biology with small molecules and proteins and trying to build these metabolic pathways. What if we could just swap it out? <laughs> right, right, right. And it's not clear that you can. It's just, I think, figuring out how to deal with the like immune kind of consequences of that is quite unclear like how how to do that well. Obviously the brain, you can't swap that one out probably. There may be other places in you that like determine identity. How would you do that? Uh, you know, it's a whole separate, separate question. That's a fun one. But that's an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the idea is like I don't know. We've talked about a lot of like tiny, small things, uh, taking out cells that are especially old and struggling to replicate as they should. But one idea is just to go more macro and be like, um, there are a bunch of damaged cells in the liver. Uh, we do liver transplants uh, for people whose like livers are failing when they're younger. We could just take a young person's liver, put it in an older person's, and like that solves all of the problems uh, that came with aging for that person. So there are all these pathways. Um, they're all kind of unique and, and mind-blowing. 
I'm curious if we if we're going to get far just by doing a bunch of kind of individual therapies like this, where each one makes people live, I don't know, a couple years longer, or do we need some very comprehensive package to avoid uh, only stopping the aging processes and then people just die a different way? I, I mean, I think this is the thing I would I would just continue to say, which is like, I think in a one small molecule or protein therapy is maybe going to get you like a couple years max. Like, I think a decade would be amazing, but I would be very, I mean, again, I've been surprised. I've been grump about a lot of stuff and I get surprised by a lot of stuff, but like, that would be amazing. One last thing I'd say also, which is um, a recent thing that I, I've been a huge grump about and really thought was dumb for the longest time. I, I see the rationale a bit more now than I used to is, is this idea that I mentioned previously of like, you're programming all your cells or at least partially programming them. You know, if you think about it, right? We, like, create kids, like, old people create kids who are young. What? Like, <laughs> what is going on there? Like, you know, this tiny cell that was in this older person is really young. And then it just keeps happening. So there's, like, this immortal lineage of cells that have been doing that for, you know, for, like, since, like, I don't know, billions of years ago. So, you know, like, what's up with the, you know, what's up with that? And so, you know, is that just something that we can take advantage of to then have all of our cells rejuvenate? Now, there's a question, there's a caveat there where I'm always like, well, but like, what if the cell just divides a lot, you know, the damage segregates? And so th this is a question I have about like how much we can really localize that to one cell versus like it's like spread across a bunch of cells. But that said, that's an area that like I've been a huge comfort about, but like I think, you know, I'm kind of coming around on a little bit. Cool. Okay. So like the fact that human bodies or like many animals' bodies have just kind of solved the problem of uh, specific cells decaying over time is is amazing. And we can just like try to learn how it's done that for uh, reproductive cells and then see if there's anything applicable uh, in other areas of the body. Exactly. Like, you know, if, if there are these factors that professionally turn cells into like very young cells that have been chugging along for essentially as long as humans have been around successfully you know, gosh, maybe we should take advantage of that. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and isn't that interesting that, like, there's this proof point that it does, you know, that that's happened for so long. Like, it just kind of makes you really change your perspective, I think, about what's plausible and longevity in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So you seem to come at this whole project from a very kind of engineering mindset where you see the human body as a bunch of systems uh, and you just kind of want to tinker with them and... I don't know, make them more robust and kind of replace the faulty parts so that they last longer. Is that kind of right? Do you want to say more about that? Yeah, I mean, I would say kind of the way I think about the field is um, that there's like these two really beautiful things and they're coming together for the first time. And so it's sort of like this really fun synthesis of two different points of view. Um, and often people will fall into like one camp or the other. So the first camp is kind of like there's something jiggly. We poke at it. We see like if it lives longer and then like whatever we poked, we'll kind of just like investigate that enough to translate to humans. And that's honestly most of the field to date. Like that's kind of how most of, I think, like scientific community thinks about things. And there's this other kind of perspective, which is like, wow, like the human body is like, you know, 10 to the 27, 10 to the 28 atoms. Let's go like kind of figure out what like a healthy configuration of those looks like and then like kind of change systems at whatever level we can um, in terms of like our tools in order to kind of like get towards that configuration. And like, obviously, you know, it's not possible to kind of like literally have a map of those atoms and hold that configuration in your mind. But I think it's like quite a powerful point of view that really this is a physically determined system. And, you know, you can like, you know, really think about it. You know, it's not possible to think about biology logically in many ways, but it, it is in a few ways. And you should sure as heck, you know, like try and reason from those. I think really in this like century in biology is like these two points of view kind of converging where like, you know, we really couldn't look at stuff. I mean, like 
like we can actually look at a cell and see like a lot of things in it directly. You know, we can directly digitize like blocks of matter, like nanoscale resolution, which is totally extraordinary and a very recent thing. And so it's sort of like for the first time, we can actually look at the systems that we're trying to change. And that just gives us like a, like a much more granular picture. And like this is the century where I think we're integrating these two points of view. Yeah, no, that is exciting and, and inspiring. Yeah, I, I'm curious... Why do you think biology is mostly so illogical? And and why is this an exception? Why is this a place where we get to look at it logically? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like kind of two points of view on this. One is that there like might be beautiful general laws of nature, kind of like Newton's laws, which is something that I, I, I always love thinking about this, right? Like, are there like Newton's laws for biology that we could find? And we just definitely have not found those yet if they're there. And so there, there, there's a few laws that we can kind of hold in our heads that give us simple, beautiful ways to think, reason about these systems. That said, you know, like physics exists, has done a bunch of really cool stuff, um, figuring out how atoms move. And again, like, you know, this is the first century that we're entering where we can actually look at the stuff that we're trying to solve. Like, I think when I grew up, you know, reading biology textbooks, it was always very confusing, like shapes and triangles that were bumping together and somehow they're supposed to tell me like how a cell worked. But instead now when, you know, one thinks about biology, it's like, one thing's about floating in a cell surrounded by, you know, like 10 to the 13, you know, molecules that are jiggling around and you can see the exact protein structures because we actually know what they look like in many cases. And like, this just gives you, I think, a very different perspective on like how to reason about these systems. Like, you know, I can't tell you like what small molecule will cure Alzheimer's, but I can tell you like if I have a protein, what, you know, I can literally imagine the shape of the protein in, my, you know, in, in one's head or look at it on, t- on a screen and then think about what like a lock and key might look like for that protein. And then actually just kind of like test whether that works. And that's kind of a very you know, it's a very satisfying, you know, kind of action to be able to take. Right. Cool. Cool. Um, Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I want to come back to some of the particular uh, new technologies that we have that make that kind of stuff more possible than it's ever been. But first, I want to zoom out and just talk about the state of the aging field. Yeah, so how things are going so far and and what the main bottlenecks are. And I guess just to start kind of open-ended, uh, is there a big scientific win that we've had in the last few years that's that I guess is already public so that you can talk about? It's a great question. Um, I think there's like two big wins that we've had recently, you know, with the caveats that we're still seeing how these will play out. And we definitely don't know how they'll impact human health yet. So, you know, one that I've been pretty resistant to, but I think I'm kind of coming around on is like, you know, reprogramming which is just this idea that, you know, an old person can create a young child and, like, whatever biological process, like, helps cells do that is something that we can take advantage of for human health. Again, like, we have no human therapeutics that really do this, and there's a lot of reasons why it might not translate. But it's just, like, weird and cool that in mice we can, like, just turn this kind of pathway on and see that they, like, have, like, you know, age-related health benefits. Like, this is just a weird and cool thing that I think the field is starting to metabolize. And then the other would be a regulatory breakthrough, which is the first like acceptance of efficacy data for a lifespan extension drug in dogs um, that just occurred a couple weeks ago. I really can't emphasize like how exciting this is. Again, this is not an approved drug. There's still safety manufacturing. And once the drug is approved, it'll need to go through a conditional uh, sort of a um, confirmatory trial. So there's all, you know, always many ways in which like the drug, you know, still needs to jump some hurdles. And, you know, those hurdles could definitely fail. But it just, it, it means it's extremely, extremely exciting um, that the regulatory bodies are even considering this kind of pathway. And so I think the field is just kind of, I mean, like starting to metabolize that as well. That's amazing. So the concept is reprogramming. And it's basically, we know an old person can produce a young child, and there's some way in which you can tap into that pathway to extend lifespan. Is that right? Yeah. So the core concepts here are as follows. It would be so great to be able to take like an old cell, like let's say a skin cell from your body and turn it into a, you know, 
kind of cell that can do anything it wants or turn into anything it wants. And this one guy, Yamanaka, he was just like, I, I'm going to guess that this set of like maybe 20 to 30 different proteins could be things that if we um, express them in a cell, they'll lead to that regeneration or reprogramming process. Just tried some stuff and then found like, you know, four things that do this. And this is amazing, you know, I think led to his you know great success later. But no one in their right mind was like, oh, obviously, yeah. Then if we just take those same factors and express them in every cell in a mouse's body, that mouse will like have effects that kind of look like they're, um, you know, having some resilience to aging or kind of, you know, doing better in an aging context. Like no one in their right, I, I think I certainly would never make that connection because it's so, it's too simplistic. But yet when this was tried, indeed, you do see like kind of positive effects of, you know, expressing these factors. And it's weird, too, because, you know, you express them the wrong way. The mouse can get, like, cancer, and so you have to be careful on how you express them. But it's, it's just kind of an example of, like, a really simple idea that someone tried that actually worked. And, like, I bet a bunch of biologists would have, like, totally scoffed at it, like, in isolation of the few papers where this is shown to be an interesting thing. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about this other one. So for context, Loyal is a company that works on life extension drugs for dogs. And one of these drugs draws on the fact that Large and giant breeds have average life expectancies that are only half that of the smallest dog breeds. And so this drug targets the kind of biological mechanisms that are thought to cause this lifespan disparity. Um, And I think it's gotten at least a step toward regulatory approval from the FDA in the U.S. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I I think honestly, like the core step is them just making the bet that if they tried to compile evidence from the literature about, you know, the aging field and present it in a way that they think is just scientifically fair to the, you know, CVM branch of the FDA, that, like, they would actually consider this literature and, you know, take it seriously and consider lifespan extension as a claim. I mean, I think I think it was a risk and it took, like, an act of imagination to, like, make that step. And I think it was, like, you know, great credits, like, the FDA or CVM's, um, you know, part that they actually considered this indication. It's, it's really, it to be really clear, like, this is something that I thought was impossible like five years ago and the company got it done in four. So like, I mean, like (laughs) we're really talking about something where if you're in the field, like I I mean, literally when this happened, I was in this exact office. I like broke down, I screamed, ran into like a conference room, started crying because just you can't, you know, being in this field for 17 years. Right. Again, like since I was a kid and just dreaming of things like this that could happen where you get mainstream like consideration, just, you know, even just rationally of the data in the field. I mean, it's really emotional to see that happen. And I think, like, it's so hard to convey to people outside the field how big of a milestone this is and, like, how much it's going to impact, I think, a lot of things that come downstream. Um, of Even if this drug ends up failing, you know, for whatever other reason down the road, I think sure. this regulatory milestone is, is a huge one for the field. Amazing. Uh, And I just actually personally love the product. Um, It's life (laughs) extension for dogs. And as someone who has a new puppy, uh, I like desperately want this puppy to live forever. And obviously that's not going to happen. But it feels like maybe a slightly easier sell. Like people love their dogs and it's less counterintuitive to them that it's like, I don't know, uh, not obviously good for dogs to live longer than it is for humans, bizarrely. 
Well, I think what you said is really interesting, right? You're like, it, it's it immediate to you that, like, you'd want your puppy to live forever. Or you're kind of like, oh, of course, it's a beautiful thing. But then when you think about, like, for yourself, maybe it's like, oh, like, that would be a bit selfish or maybe it's a bit much. And I, I think there's something beautiful about how we, like, always want for others, like, what we feel like we can't, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, let's talk about this report that you contributed to that talks about lots of bottlenecks of for aging research. And it outlines kind of 12 key challenges. And I'm going to see if we can get through about half of them. We, m- we might not actually make it through that. That many, but we're going to try. Um, so the top need, according to this report, is accelerating the path to market for aging drugs. Uh, can you explain what the challenge is there? Yeah, so this is something I think is um, so interesting. So so one hypothesis that I have, and again, to be clear, this is not like this is kind of just a strong belief. It's like a strong intuition I have from being in this field for a long time, but it's not, it's, it's something a lot of people share, but I think it's not like, you know, there's a lot of, you can argue a lot with this, is, is that like the, the next big milestone in the field should aim for and has a chance to hit in the coming like um, decades is kind of showing that a therapeutic can extend lifespan in a human. Mm-hmm. And like, I think the reason that's important is just no one thinks that you can do that. And I think like some part of the field thinks that you can do that. Again, to be clear, this is not like a large lifespan extension. This is just like could be the most marginal, but like basically just getting a huge number of people and uh, enough to actually show any kind of um, even months long, you know, significant extension. Just, just to be able to show that we can we can change biology in humans in a way that does affect lifespan. Like, I think just kind of showing what we already know in a sense. And and so the question of how you do that is enormously difficult. It could be that there are no drugs out there that do this currently. It could be that there are drugs on market that people are doing today that are already doing this that we just haven't measured. And so kind of like the strategic questions around figuring out how to build companies or orgs that do that is like by far the hardest strategic and scientific question that like a founder could face this decade. But like I think the best founders will like kind of go towards figuring that out. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Is part of the problem that when you do trials and you and you want to show evidence that your drug works on something for things like, uh, I don't know, cardiovascular disease, um, we've ended up with like blood pressure as this um, interim metric. That's something that we can track and we can do like a a trial that's like months long and work out whether the impact on blood pressure is like good enough that we expect a certain impact on cardiovascular disease. Um, But I guess it seems really, really hard to generate the kind of evidence a regulatory body would want on something like I don't know, we tried to follow someone for or like a group of people for decades and like figure out if they lived longer relative to the control group. Like, how do you even get the kind of relevant evidence that would make regulatory bodies uh, be able to evaluate aging interventions? You know, there's, there's lots of interesting like approaches to that question. You know, one is trying to just find generic biomarkers that like aren't even like functionally obviously relevant to health, but like seem to be like highly correlated with impossibly like causal of longevity. Again, quite hard in humans because, you know, the level of evidence you might need to confirm that those are like, you know, potentially causally related would be quite high and potentially like you just like in of itself, like the, the kind of burn generate. There's there's things you can say like, oh, well, you know, maybe I don't want to lose function. Like, let, let's say that I, I get a bunch of, like, physiological proxies for things that get worse with age that I wouldn't want to have get worse. And I just kind of, like, measure, you know, how those change. And then I kind of say, well, you know, I just assume that, like, if these change, then maybe the drug will change lifespan. I mean, I, I don't think I, like, am that tied to, like, this drug having to move, like, you know, for example, like, maximum lifespan in the first iteration. It's, it's more, like, just strong evidence of, like, affecting the aging process in humans in a way that we could predict in advance. So that's also interesting. Yep, yep, that makes sense. Uh, So another major priority is better understanding the aging brain. Uh, Does the work you'd like to see here differ from more traditional research into dementia and similar diseases? It does, actually. So parts of 
more traditional dementia research do like look at differences between like young and old brains. You know, a lot of these studies are non-trivial to to do. You know, like getting, for example, like old mice is a whole thing. Like if you've ever tried to just like order old mice online, like it's like, <laughs> you know, you like someone has to keep a colony of mice around for a long time to get them to age long enough. And so it's actually kind of tough to just like get access to that as a resource. And so that means like the burden to do like an old to young comparison study might be higher. And so I just feel like there's a lot we don't know about how old and young brains differ um, because of very like just practical issues and the fact that if you look at the budget of, you know, the National Institute for Health, like it just the majority of money going towards aging is very allocated towards things like Alzheimer's. And it's kind of like, I'll see, it's actually, I think, kind of like a science funding question or problem. Like I'll see a lot of professors who don't really care about Alzheimer's inherently reframe their whole research agenda to kind of like have an Alzheimer's angle. And that's like, well, what do you do if you do that? Well, maybe you like order an Alzheimer's, you know, transgenic mouse. And maybe it's not like a great model, but like, you know, you just kind of like test your thing in it. And so it's just sort of like, it's hard to emphasize like how much like just having a tagline of something being a disease affects like all research, like, and it's very pervasive. Um, and so this is not to say that Alzheimer's research is, you know, at all not something that we should spend a lot of money on. It's just, I think the fact that aging doesn't have similar, for example, funding weight, it doesn't have similar advocacy leads to a lot of these inefficiencies. Yeah, that's really a shame. What What is a project that you would like to see done here? Is there any way to get better access to aged mice? Yeah, so, so I, you know, better access to um, aged mice, just making them more available to researchers is, is one thing. Uh, actually, better access to aged human tissue is a huge issue. Like, you know, many people who pass wanting to donate their um, their tissue, like, just the process to logistically get access to human neural tissue is really you know, quite complex. And often tissue will get access to has aged for, let's say, like, two to three days post-mortem. So you're getting, like, what are you going to do with tissue that's been sitting out for, like, you know, days? And, like, really, what are you going to infer from that about human health, you know, like, analyzing it? And so in many ways, like, it's just it's just kind of tough to actually ask the question, like, what's here? And then, you know, what's what's in old stuff and what's in, like, young stuff, just logistically? Yeah. It's not that there's one specific study I like to see. It's just, like, literally just a, a body of, of work that characterizes that a lot better than we have where we can address all these like, operational challenges to getting that data. Yeah, yeah. One approach to solving brain aging uh, that I read about uh, while reading your work for this interview is um, creating new brain cells uh, like neurons or glia, which are the immune cells of the brain, uh, and using them to replace old ones. How promising does that seem to you? It's a good question. You know, like I'm not an expert in that field, so like it, it's you know, you know, one thing I really love, I think about. A lot of this research is like it kind of forces us to like ask questions about the nature of identity. So it's sort of like if this was changing the nature of identity, like how would we even know in a mouse model? You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I think those questions are so interesting, and, and I think what I will say is like it's not as crazy as it may seem. Like you know, we we are able to like do cell therapies where you know like external cells and grafts and like grow. So we, like we know a lot of this stuff is possible in theory. It's just a question of like, well, what fraction of the brain could we then gradually replace and like how would that affect the identity of the animal or like the behavior of the animal? And, and those, are, those are, I think, still open questions in, in the literature. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We we literally know that we've been able to, is it in mice maybe, uh, transplant brain tissue into a mouse brain and have it exist and be part of that animal's brain. But then the open questions are like, how much could we actually do that? And that mouse still be that mouse in the care, in the way we care about, uh, at least we definitely would care about it in humans. And then also just kind of biologically, how, how far does that kind of grafting go successfully? Exactly. If sentences are being formed, like, what does that really mean? And like, what are the identities of these cells? I think people often feel inhibited thinking about biology because they're kind of like, oh, it's so complicated. You know, I don't really know. It's like, 
if you just think of the dumbest thing that you would do to fix any problem and you actually like wonder if you just did that thing like what would happen just sometimes you know you really can't just try like a very simple thing and like you know a lot of a lot of interesting results have come from just you know sort of that that approach i think yeah Something I had no idea about was the fact that, unlike humans, uh, songbirds and turtles can continuously generate new brain cells throughout their lives. Given that humans can't do this and the aging brain uh, is a huge bottleneck to uh, solving aging in humans, do songbirds and turtles seem worth studying or does that seem, I don't know, a bit far-fetched to you? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's so many inefficiencies in research. Like, it's really cool to find new ones. And I think one is kind of the diversity of organisms that haven't been studied for reasons that are just kind of logistic. Like, okay, songbirds and turtles, you know, are studied. Like, for example, a friend was just telling me the other day that, like, you know, slices of uh, turtle brain, slices of turtle brains can be, like, you know, more resistant to certain types of treatments because they're they're more stress resistant in certain ways. And so it's, you know, it's sort of like, let's say you're a grad student showing up to a lab for the first time and you're like, I need to get a PhD. And there's this model organism that you know scientifically, like, has some interesting properties, but you could just order mice from Jackson Lab, and why wouldn't you, you know, like, grind out, like, a study on an indication that everyone cares about and they can get grants for? Like, it's sort of, um, I think, this big inefficiency where, um, yeah, like, really great model organisms like, aren't studied as much as they should be, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so another priority is around replacing damaged tissues and organs, and I think this basically refers to making it easier to access organ transplants. Is that right, or am I missing a piece? I think it falls into... A couple of categories, but my understanding of like the biggest bottleneck in that field currently is just kind of right now an organ transplant is not something that you'd sign up for casually or on a lark. It's it's you know like a, a huge in, invasive surgery and it's you know can have quite complicated downstream effects. Okay, another bottleneck is talent. So it sounds like in some ways this field is growing massively. There's been something like a 70x increase in funding in the last decade, uh, but talent is still a major bottleneck. Why is that? It's, it's like so exciting to be in the field right now because I think you have to understand when I first entered the field like you know, again a couple of decades ago like it felt like there's a you know a small cluster of people who all had this kind of like shared secret and they were all hanging out together but like you know just felt like kind of like a little like Dungeons and Dragons club or something it was like it was a very like kind of isolated like in group and now like I meet people who since they were like a kid have wanted to work on this and have been reading about it and like I, we have so much more online now and so much more education about like Start a biotech company or like, you know, different areas of longevity. And to meet someone who's like 18 and spent like, you know, five years already kind of like loading all that stuff, it's honestly like just mind-blowingly cool. And so I think like this is the maybe the one of the first generations where we'll have like a combination of both highly mission-oriented and like educated founders with like a high degree of like competence and pragmatism. And then also like the support, like the existence and support of a community that can actually like help them actualize that. That's really cool. Yeah, I kind of wonder if because maybe this field has like a very sci-fi vibe to it, it's hard to get talent where like people who like are, I don't know, kind of altruistic and want to work in biotech or bio or medicine or something are like, but not aging. That's, I don't know, it's too weird. Or like, that's like for edgy, weird people who are like trying to make immortal humans. Uh, that's not for me. <laughs> um, does that ever feel like uh, it comes up? Or do you have a sense that there are some people feeling that way? Yeah, well, I'd say there's kind of a couple of things at play. One is like a disgust reaction to incoherent people, like where I think I feel like this attracts, you know, some fraction of our high quality work and some fraction of people who are not doing high quality work. And I think that you can feel when a field has competence or something. And I think the aging field has a lot of competence, but also has like a lot of noise. And like that can cause just a lot of kind of like force field around it. I think that's changed a lot. I mean, like there's now, you know, like just an enormous number of great labs in this space that like are very obviously like like objectively competent. But, you know, that, that's a hard one. 
I think people just don't, it's just not a thing that's in the water. Like I, I am in this field because I grew up disconnected from every social like kind of system you could imagine, you know, homeschooled, like in a house by myself with a very kind of like, you know, futuristic kind of, uh, you know, milieu. And like, it just was obvious that this was a thing that you could do. Right. You were just a child wondering about death and why we've arbitrarily chosen 70 as the age to die. Yeah, exactly. And like, I, I think our, our house also had like a lot of just kind of like pro-science memes and it was just it was just very much like in the air Mm -hmm. and like most people just don't grow up with that i I think if if something is not in the air you have to fight hard to find it but then like it probably is one of those things that has a lot of impact because no one else you know would have found it um and so like that's definitely yeah why i think aging is so underworked on yeah okay so maybe for people thinking about whether they'd want to enter this career or not uh knowing that like yes there's some noise yes uh there's like some stereotype or vibe of it being weird and sci-fi uh but actually there's just like clearly a lot of really excellent science and um people yeah founding like legitimate powerful things i I think what i'm describing are a lot of really hard things right it's like oh you're you know trying to like make this big social change or trying to develop a drug and like i mean developing a drug is an extraordinarily difficult enterprise like you create a hunt like you know like a molecule that has you know the order of hundreds of atoms you freeze its design you test it in 10-year iteration cycles like this is this is not something that anyone in their right mind who enjoys doing things quickly or efficiently would do and so there's a question of okay well why why would you work in this field and i think there's a couple of things that I want to say about the beauty of biology and the joy of it that, like, I, I really think it, it, it's like it's like one of the coolest things you could do. And so, like, one kind of perspective on that is just is just that, you know, the way you learn biology in school isn't isn't what it really feels like. Like when, when you're thinking about biology properly, like you should be thinking as though you're like a little molecule floating in a cell and you're like looking around, like figuring out what to do. And again, the really beautiful thing is like we now know like what parts of the cell look like. And so you can imagine yourself in this alien world, like floating around, deciding where to go, deciding like what proteins to hang out with. You know, when you look inside of a cell, you see little robots. Like, um, I don't know if you've seen Bigger Hero 6, but, like, there's a scene with, like, I think Hero, um, that the main character, is building these little nanobots in his garage. And the really cool thing that you get to do in biology is you get to, like, work with thousands of nanobots that have been created over, like, you know, millennia or, you know, much longer than that. You know, and you can play with them and kind of manipulate them. And, and you can do it kind of rationally in, 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 you know, many contexts. Like when you look in a cell, you see proteins literally like walking around, like they'll literally like have little legs and just kind of be like walking around or like carrying big bags of like molecules from one part of the cell to another. And, you know, this is all at your disposal. And, and the point that I want to make about timing is like this, this is this is new. This is new stuff. This is not something that we had in like the early 19. 19- hundreds like you know our ability to sort of copy paste dna really you know started ramping up in the 70s and like many of the most exciting tools that we have you know like cell therapies gene therapies are only coming into their prime now and when i say cell or gene therapy what i mean is i'm taking you know a, a literal cell like a whole complex you know like city of tiny robots that work together normally to you know keep you alive that we barely understand and I'm making rational changes to it, like like adding new robots that I've like created with my own hands in a you know, Microsoft Word document somewhere. I was like copy pasting like letters, you know, in order to make it do something like, you know, for example, like eliminate a cancer cell. Like that's just one of the most extraordinary things that humanity we've ever done. And I think I think kind of I think if you like operations, you should work in this field, maybe in an operational context and like enjoy that. But like if you if you love science, if you really, you know, get a kick out of there's just so much here that it truly it's like it's it's, it wasn't here 50 years ago and it's like this is the time where it's all being figured out and it's like this integration that i was mentioning of like these kind of aging viewpoints of like well we just poke something and we see what happens versus from the ground up we're kind of like 
we understand a lot about how the system works, like that integration is happening now. And that, that's why it's so exciting to work in this field. Um, you know, not just because you should, because it's like, you know, impactful, which I definitely personally feel, but also very strongly because it's like, you know, one of the most beautiful things you could spend your time or me- your mental energy kind of, you know, calculating. And, and so, I, yeah, I want to make the case for the beauty of biology as well as the impact of it. That was beautiful. Uh, okay. Is there anything else you'd want to say to people considering moving into this field? I, I mean, this is probably common to other areas of impacts, but like just as kind of a word of like caution to those considering working in the field, like I think it, it can be stressful or like hard in a variety of ways. And so just to be like honest about that, I think like, hmm. like, like, cause I really think at its core, a question that I keep coming back to is like, why would you work on longevity versus like, like if you care about impact, why is it rational to work in longevity? I think a lot of it comes down to like if there's a belief that is like not yet shared by the full population, but only a small set of people have, that would cause them to act differently or the whole population to act differently. To me, that's like kind of the core of the reason. Like it's like the reason to really personally spend time on is just like, you know, this inefficiency. And but the problem is like only if only a small set of people believe something, it can really feel quite hard to you know, advocate for that or like interact with a population that doesn't have that belief. Like it's, it's quite jarring. And this is one of the most fundamental topics in the world is like our relationship with death and inevitability and kind of like, you know, having any agency over that is extremely scary and and weird. And um, and so I just want, yeah, I want to make the case that like it, it it's a very weird field to work in because like you, you have to, I think, be really thoughtful and careful with yourself and with like others of like how you respectfully talk about this stuff and kind of like navigate it. In addition to also, you know, kind of like building companies and kind of like, you know, thinking about drug development and all these other things. Yeah, nice. I'm curious if you personally think about your own death very much. Does it feel far away or scary or um, does it feel like your work on this is is kind of detached from your own mortality? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a question that I, I think about every day and have for, for a long time. I, I guess when I think about people I love, it's also um, a pretty active topic. I mean, I would say personally, like, working in this field, I think has given me maybe a much more peaceful, like, kind of relationship to my own death. It's sort of like, I don't believe that I'll necessarily, you know, live some unbounded number of years. Because even if you solved all, every biological problem, like we talked about, there's still um, accidents and such. I, I don't know, like, I, I guess just like, because I've had to think about it for so long, it doesn't seem that scary anymore. It just kind of seems like, you know, something that could happen. Mm-hmm. Something I'm grateful for, I think, that comes from working in this field is just I, you know, I think people often like think that, oh, if you work in this field, you have this like weird blind side to death where it's like, oh, just death is like universally bad or kind of. But I think if you work in it long enough, you just kind of have to really sit with that as a concept. And it, it cha- it's hard to describe. But it really changes your relationship with it in an interesting way. That's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing. OK, one final question. Uh, if you could solve one scientific mystery in your lifetime, what's your pick? Uh, definitely what is life like just definitely (laughs) that's the one that I'm curious about can you can you say more about what you even mean by what is life I mean like dude there's obviously something going on right it's like you know like living things you can predict so much about them we barely know how or why we're multicellular and we don't have any idea why that's true like bacteria talk to each other in so many different ways we don't know why or what they're saying really or like what's going on there and just I mean I I just feel like it's this, this huge field that we don't understand at all and it's so exciting Cool. My guest today has been Laura Deming. Thank you so much for coming on. Cool. Thank you. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell with mastering and technical editing by Milo McGuire. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together, as always, by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. (laughs) 